as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Speak Up. I'm Annika Flynn, paediatric speech pathologist, and today I'm super excited to be chatting about pretend play. To be perfectly honest, early in my career, pretend play was an area I knew I should work on, but I was pretty terrible at it. I knew that pretend play was critical for developing oral language, and I knew my kids with ASD really needed work in this area, but I would always find myself bumbling through play intervention with no clear focus or direction. Having my own kids helped a bit, but it wasn't until I completed Professor Karen Stegnetti from Deakin University's Play Skill Workshop a few years ago that I really started understanding how to effectively develop the pretend play skills in the kids that I worked with. I now have a much better understanding of the levels of pretend playability, a framework for assessment, a framework for goal setting, and a clear direction of where my intervention is heading. And to be honest, it's just super fun. I would say working on pretend play skills is at the top of my preferred intervention approaches for sure. I'm so pleased to have Professor Karen Stagnetti join me today. Thank you so much for giving up some of your precious time to chat, Karen. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Annika. So Karen, I understand your background is in occupational therapy, which like speech pathology is such a broad area of clinical practice. How did you come to specialise in play? Well, um, good question. I have to go back to my memory archive. <laughs> I think um, in reflecting about it, all through my undergraduate degree in occupational therapy, I think I was interested in play way back then because there was a book from the 70s written by an OT in America. And I, over the my undergrad, I think I... Um, I copied all a lot of the chapters in that because it, it fascinated me. And then um, I, I knew it was important. I worked in paediatrics. I was in uh, community-based paediatrics. My first job was at what was called the Spastic Centre in Brisbane. And then um, we moved. Then I did, did some tutoring work at Queensland Uni. And then we moved to Victoria. And I was in a community-based multidisciplinary team that covered a huge area and seeing children not to six. So my, my perfect job <laughs> for me. So um, I knew play was important and I kept seeing these children who I knew couldn't play, but I was not happy with the play assessments that we had in occupational therapy. To me, they were just developmental assessments and they didn't give me anything unique and specific about, about play. So I saw play as this huge shadow <laughs> that was really hard to understand and I thought, well, that will be interesting to try and understand it, not thinking I would get that far. So um, I used to talk to parents about reducing risk if they had another year at preschool and now understanding play, I can tell them specifically why. So I think it started 
with this interest in, in that play was important. I also did a, what was called a master's qualifying way back in the 80s, and I did my big lit review research project on symbolic play because I, I just found it fascinating. Like how can you just pretend and make things up? Like, like it, it, it was a mystery to me. It was, was fascinating. And there were quite a few OTs from America writing about play saying pretend play is not important <laughs> for OTs. And I was like, I don't think so. So, um, so I guess my journey was really embedded in undergrad. And then after 10 years of clinical practice, I, um, I kept seeing these children at preschool going, no, they need another year just to consolidate play skills, but what does that mean? So, and, and seeing the link between play and learning. So I um, enrolled in a master's degree, research degree, initially looking at let's look at play and learning, what, what's the connection? And as um, I got into that, that eventually morphed into a PhD and I suddenly realised I had to work out how to measure play. Like if I'm going to look at play and re relate it to learning, how do I measure play? Because I don't like any of the play assessments mm, that okay. were around and even the symbolic play assessment. Like I remember seeing a child at Queensland Uni when I was tutoring there um, and, and it, it told me this child had within expected range of normal play and I thought this child has just related objects together, which is what that assessment is. So I started the journey looking at how you measure play. And um, I worked in this multidisciplinary team in rural Victoria. And at the time, because I was rural, we could get six papers from the library. And I would give all my um, team members <laughs> in our multidisciplinary team a list of papers to order. So they would, um, you know, they'd get something from the library and say, Karen, I think this is yours. So I started reading and um, I remember in my kitchen in Warrnambool, I just had all these papers in piles around, around skills to do with play. And having read a lot and thought a lot, I came to the conclusion that pretend play is essentially play. Like nobody, nobody in any of the written work disagrees that pretend play is play. And it has this essential element of you know, changing objects like a box can be a car, um, posing meaning, going beyond the literal. And I knew the children on the spectrum, that was what they had trouble with, you know, and that the children I was seeing in retrospect at preschool, that was what they had trouble with. You know, they could run and jump and do all sorts of things, but they couldn't actually sit in the sandpit, for example, and create this big play scene with others. So that began my journey in developing the child-initiated pretend play assessment, which ended up being my PhD. And that, that took me about 10 years from where to go because I changed universities and upgraded and, you know, that was a journey in itself. And then I started using it um, with the clients that I had coming in because they met my research criteria. So I was seeing these children with this assessment I was developing and finding they just could not do it. And, um, and that was identifying a whole lot of reasons why that people were worried about them. So particularly children where teachers were going, I think, you know, they're going to have trouble learning at school, but I don't know why. And the chipper would actually pull that apart. So I started seeing that these children were two to four years delayed in their pretend play. <laughs> 
And I was horrified thinking, I, I can't ignore a two to four year delay. So, so what do you do? So then learn to play therapy started from a clinical base. It started from me identifying these children and working out what to do. And now 25 years later, I have the new book out and it's like, this is what you do and this is why you do it. And these are the children that benefit and this is these are the key techniques and and so I can explain it to people, but it's taken all that time to get to the point where I can articulate it in great detail and it's as you say, it's just fun and it's so satisfying to see children change and when I started doing this way back in the nineties, parents would come and say, "My child's talking a lot more. Can you do more? Just do more of what you're doing because they're talking at home now." And, um, and the literature at the time was saying we know language and, and pretend plays related, but we don't know why and we don't know which comes first. And I was like, I'm doing play and they're talking, so it's obviously a, a link. And now we have lovely research by Evan Kidd, who had a couple of PhD students really in papers just coming out in the last 12 months uh, where he looked at pretend play or he called it symbolic play and really pulling apart um, parents playing with pretend play toys and parents playing with what they call functional toys and the pretend play analysis with language and conversation and communication. Like it's just mind-blowing, the difference. Mm. Um, and so so the research is really supporting what I was seeing clinically and mm-hmm. um and I'm so glad you found it helpful because it's... Oh, absolutely. Thank you for your dedication. I just find the detail just amazing. I think without that detail, you are just looking at a whole lot of stuff and you're not quite sure specifically what it means or what it is. And I just love that level of detail in your work and how concrete that is. I've just found that immensely helpful. Now, I know that play is such a broad term and you've mentioned pretend play, you've mentioned symbolic play. Are there certain components of pretend and symbolic play that make it that type of play versus all these other types of play that we often hear about? Yes, I know. Play is really complex. I think it's the most complex behaviour, but at the same time it's not seen as important, so it's often downgraded, but it's really complex. So pretend play um, I see as it's symbolic play. Like I, I, my, my colleague Evan Kid, he talks about symbolic play, but it's what I would call pretend place. But symbolic play is technically where you take an object and you pretend it's something else. So a box is a car or a block is a phone because you're using symbols in play. And that's a defining characteristic of pretend play. But children, two other defining characteristics are attributing properties. So, you know, my, my stick is a horse, but it's a really, like my horse is really happy so attributing a property and also referring to absent objects in play. So they're the core key um, cognitive skills that are unique to pretend play, but you also have characters in pretend play, you have creation of play scenes and you have story and you have narrative and you have logical sequential thinking. So these are also key components of pretend play and complex pretend play. 
Yeah, awesome. Now, in preparing for our chat, Karen, I came across some research, which I don't think is going to surprise anybody, but it was noting that in the 80s, about 40% of the free play of preschoolers just at home in their free play was pretend play. Um, Once we'd hit the 2000s, this had dropped to about 9% of their free time, and this figure is just continuing to drop, which is quite scary to say the least. (laughs) I'm so curious about what your thoughts are on that. Yes, I I can see that um, practically and talking to teachers as well. Um, I have a a colleague I work with who works at a school um, and she does chipper assessments for all the children that come in and she says to me, Karen, they're coming in at a three-year level into prep. So they're not ready to learn, they don't have the language, they don't have the skills, they don't have that implicit understanding of narrative yet. Um, Now, Peter Gray, uh, G-R-A-Y, he has also looked at time. So he's looked at the 1950s to the 2000s and found that unstructured free play has declined significantly and he's related that to anxiety and depression in adolescence. Mm -hmm. So he's linked linked those two. His research is really uh, very good. So I think the um, screens... I think screens coming in has impacted. I think parents being busy has impacted. Um, I think it's it's a multi-dimensional issue as to why that's uh, that's happened. Um, I know there are some parents who value that, and so you see, you can see that when I'm you know out and about or at parks or you know kids creating things. So there there are children who can pretend in play, but when you look at population wise. Um, yeah, there it is a concern. So it is it is hard to get the message across. Really, I mean, I, I'm not a marketer, but I have been interviewed a few times on radio, and I can tell the journalist is only worried about how many hours his child should spend on screen. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they don't want to hear. You know, the less yeah. the better, and yeah. and um and pretend plays thinking play. So you have to think to engage in pretend play. You have to solve problems. And the children who haven't been exposed to that, um, when they get to school, you know, they're good at rote learning, but when they've got to start thinking about things, that's when teachers really find a drop-off and and are not sure why. Absolutely. I find I work at a school and I find the referrals I get for kids that are really struggling with narrative writing in particular, and I'm asked to come in and intervene at that point. And when I look back through their history, they are kids that haven't engaged in that much pretend play for a variety of reasons but yeah it will it will catch them um, at some point and keep us busy and in jobs probably (laughs) yes now I know that you've I know that you've mentioned your chipper assessment which is quite well known but you also have a few other play assessment tools for different age groups too could you maybe mention what some of them happen to be yes so there's a pretend play enjoyment developmental checklist so um that's been further developed. In the first Learn to Play book, there was a symbolic and imaginative play developmental checklist, which was just in there because the publisher asked. Um, Because as I said, I had all these papers all over my kitchen about the development of pretend play and what happens when in development. Um, So that now is an assessment. Um, It's overtaken the symbolic and imaginative developmental checklist. So it now has been further developed, basically all on clinical work. And that looks at children from 12 months to five, but I've also used it for six and seven-year-olds at special school 
you know, who really their play is really at that 18-month level. So that gives you a developmental age. It also has an enjoyment of play scale in there because it's not just being able to play, it's enjoying play that neurologically is absolutely critical. So it's that enjoyment of play. Um, and there's also a description of sense of self because I have a colleague in Canada who's very interested in sense of self through play so that, you know, if anyone wants to do a PhD, that's a whole area <laughs> that needs to be looked at. But, um, but that's just at this stage a description just to fill out, you know, other observations around the child. Um, then there's a teacher pretend play checklist. So my colleague Louise Pash, who's at Deakin in Education, we've done a lot of work in schools with teachers going, we have all these kids coming to school who aren't ready to learn. How do we put play in the curriculum? How do we build these basic skills? And so they needed a way to measure play and look at play. So the pretend play checklist for teachers is a stripped down version of the pretend play enjoyment developmental checklist. So it's a pretty blunt instrument, the teacher checklist, but it certainly gives teachers um, a, a framework to understand play. We've just done an inter-rater reliability study on that and it's, it's really high. So it's higher than I thought. It's, it's really acceptable. It's good to excellent reliability. So it means teachers can, once they're trained, can, can actually identify play. And then the last one is the animated movie test. Mm -hmm. So this is for 8 to 15-year-olds. Yeah, love it. And it's been in development for 10 years and I do have to write three journal articles oh. on that <laughs> when I get my head around it. In your spare time. <laughs> yeah. And again, the inter-rater reliability on that is good. And we've looked at that in relation to narrative language. So all the items on the movie test um, are, are correlated to narrative language. And a couple of the items are correlated to theory of mind. And that's what, um, so I developed that when I was thinking, you know, after years of working with these children, thinking what happens when these children get to 12 and they've never been able to play and and they social social uh, socializing is a big issue as well as literacy at school yeah absolutely awesome now you have mentioned before that learn to play is your therapy intervention approach um, I know there's lots of key principles that fall under that framework but could you maybe broadly mention what some of those key principles are yes so learn to play therapy is about playing with and beside a child to build their ability to play. So your basic knowledge is the development of pretend play. It's really bread and butter knowledge that you need to know. And then if, as you do it, you'll recognise what that play looks like for that child. Um, so you need to know the child's level of play because that's where you start. You start at that level because the children that we work with um, don't understand what you're doing. If you start playing above their level, they'll disengage, they'll wander around, you'll have a behaviour issue. But if you start where they are, uh, and for some children, like children on the spectrum, for example, who have no idea what you're doing and don't care, you've got to build that enjoyment. So the new Learn to Play book's got a lot around um, emotional engagement and some engaging activities that I've found work in a clinic situation. But, you know, you always get a child where nothing works and you've got to start and, and think about something for that child. But generally about 80% of the children, the activities in the book have worked for them just to get that hook in. Um, so that's important. Repetition with variation is a really important basic um, skill, clinical skill, because for these children who are learning to play, you've got to stick on the same level while they're engaged. You keep doing it, but you vary it slightly. So, for example... Um, pushing the truck 
you know, teaching them how to push a truck. You go fast, you go slow, you go around a corner, you go backwards, you park it under a chair. Like you, you're driving the truck, but you put all these variations in it. That is a critical skill uh, in the early stages of pretend play. The other one is challenging, and challenging is where you bring in more complex play skills at the right time for that child, and then you consolidate that with a little bit more repetition with variation. So um, with a past master's student at Deakin, we've just resubmitted a revised journal article on the process of Learn to Play, where she analysed 24 videos of me working with children and we plotted out all these skills and what happens. So it was really interesting. The first session was really high repetition with variation and the last session hardly any at all because the child was taking over the play. So that was over 15 sessions. So um, so most you should see a change uh, by the eighth session, six to eight sessions, uh, unless a child has an intellectual disability and then it might be the 12th to 16th session before you start seeing a shift and a child needs to have 12 months developmental level um, particularly cognition and at least one meaningful word or gesture uh, because pretend play doesn't begin till the second year of life so if you're working with children who are on a nine month developmental level even if they're six learn to play is too hard Having a cup of tea with Teddy is way too hard. So you need DIR floor time or, or TheraPlay, some other intervention. Um, but uh, that, they, that's learn to play in a nutshell. And you're wanting, you're wanting to become redundant in a session. You're wanting that child to take over, know what to do and organise you in a session. And when they're at that point, they should be talking, they should understand narrative, they should be making friends, they should be less anxious and they should be happier. And it's awesome to see. Yes. <laughs> it's so exciting to see when they get to that point. It's just amazing. But you're right, though. It does take some persistence and it does have sessions where things don't move that dramatically. So there is that patience involved. But yes, when you get to that point of change, it's quite magical, really. It's just awesome to see. Now, I always love a practical question. So my final question today is um, what are some of the props, toys, objects, etc. that you think would be really worthwhile for speech pathologists to have in their um, pretend play intervention kit? Okay, so in a kit, um, you need two lots. You need real toys and you need unstructured objects. So unstructured objects at a minimum, a couple of boxes like shoe boxes, um, cloth, different coloured cloth, um, um, a couple of, um, I, I have a couple of sticks or tubes, you know, the cardboard tubes inside glad wrap and things they're, they're really quite useful um, but just basically those three things tubes cloth and bits of paper because you can use paper for roofs on houses and paper for blanket that type of thing so so paper boxes um, cardboard tubes cloth as, as a core and then for toys I remember going shopping Deacon gave us a whole lot of money to buy toys for our playrooms and I remember thinking wow, you know, 15 years ago I would have bought something totally different. But you buy toys to promote pretend play, and this is shown in research. So you need a tea set, a gender-neutral one, if you can find it. Not, not that easy, <laughs> but a tea set. Uh, you need large dolls, um, you know, with big faces, particularly if you're working with children on the spectrum. You need dolls that can hold balls and that can have a cup of tea where you move their arms. A puppet. You know, puppets with big mouths is good. Uh, big trucks, uh, blocks, big blocks, uh, a, a doctor's kit. And 
and I th and probably a little um, cooking set with a stove. So if you've got those, you're set up to do a whole lot of work with children who are on those early levels of play or even, you know, you can combine those and, and build more complex play scenes. Um, I did have a car mat uh, in my playroom that a student gave me they, that she no longer needed and that has been brilliant mm -hmm. So uh, because you can use that at all different levels of complexity. Mm. Of play. Awesome. And we're lucky to have shops like Kmart and Aldi now that do have some pretty good quality, yes. sturdy toys that kind of tick the boxes with what you've said. Um, and they're not overly expensive. So <laughs> there's some good there's some good stuff out there. That's right. I think Anko is, um, yeah, Anko or something like that. But I, I know. I Yeah, the Kmart brand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... Um, I often I go to the toy section in Kmart because I, I use some of their toys for the chipper kits. So they are lovely, mm. like they're lovely. Mm. It is one and of my favourite um, places. <laughs> yeah, but you need, uh, for learn to play, you need big toys. So yeah. modern teaching aids is another where you might be able to get the big, big rubber blocks. Um, and um, I have been talking to um, I've been thinking about doing a big learn to play doll, whether um, learn to play, my daughter's you know website can can um, have those. So we're still working through the mechanics of that, but because um, a lot of people say it's hard to get a big doll. So um, anyway, we're still thinking through that. I've worked out what I need that doll to be able to do. For example, a thumb and a wrist joint would be good so they can hold things. But um, anyway, we're still thinking that through, and I might have spoken too soon. But um, work in progress. We're, that yeah, would be very work, popular. That, <laughs> that's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now I could just go on and on chatting. It's just been such a great chat. I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise, Karen. Honestly, your workshop a few years ago was a total game changer for me, and I just could not recommend it higher to pediatric speech pathologists out there. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And we will be back with another conversation next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.